Thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Motley Fool Money. Harry's has a special offer that you're going to love, and Dad will too. Get $5 off one of their shave sets, including a limited edition Father's Day set at harrys.com fool. Support for Motley Fool Money also comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Explorer, Simon Erickson from Supernova, David Kretzman, and from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. Good to see you as always, gents. Hello, hey, Chris. Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will get a summer movie preview from Nell Minow, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with a shakeup in the automotive industry. After just three years in the corner office, Mark Fields is out as the CEO of Ford Motor Company. The board is replacing him with Jim Hackett, who most recently has been heading up Ford's Smart Mobility Division. Uh, Simon, I think it's fair to say Mr. Hackett has quite a task ahead of himself. What do we know about this guy? Well, three words, Chris. Self-driving cars. That's going to be the future for Ford here, I think. I think that there's a lot of impatience that Ford is falling behind a lot of the other, the other automakers for m- mobility. I mean, we've seen GM invest a billion dollars last year into cruise automation, self-driving cars. We saw Chrysler teaming up with Google's Waymo self-driving cars. Ford has said that this is important and a strategic priority, but we just haven't seen the progress, I think, that shareholders wanted to. So, they put Jim Hackett, who's done a lot of great work with Steelcase before, with the University of Michigan before. He's a very design-focused guy tackling big problems. I think he's the right guy for the job. I would applaud this move. He does have success, David, um, although I think some people are looking at him and saying his experience is not exactly in the automotive industry, but Maybe that's a plus in this situation. I think so. Ha- having uh, an outsider coming in can be an advantage in some cases. And Ford is still in a pretty strong financial position. I think their free cash flow is around $12 billion or so. So they're in a position where they're producing a lot of cash and how they direct it. I think Simon's right on the money there that, uh, that they need to focus on that innovation in autonomous driving, self driving cars, electric cars. And it seems like that's where his focus is. The stock down 40% while Fields was the CEO in three years. Do you think, on some level, Hackett realizes that the stock price is going to be part of how he's judged here, Jeff? I mean, they just couldn't get any respect in the marketplace. They they grew earnings over that period. The, the stock trades at a very inexpensive price of seven times forward earnings estimates and a low multiple to free cash flow as well. Has a large yield, but there's just no respect for the business and. I wonder how much of that is the the fear or acknowledgement that change the pace of change is speeding up, and <laughs> he, so, uh, <laughs> there was nowhere else fast, for him to go. That was perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> it's faster than I can compute what I just said, and uh, if you're not on top of it, you're going to get discounted in the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, the market has put the brakes on this company in the last couple oh of years. Gosh. I mean, 11 <laughs> times earnings, it's now paying a 5.5% dividend. If you think that Hackett can turn things around with Ford, you are buying shares pretty cheap right now. More signs of life in the retail industry. Best Buy's first quarter profits rose 33%. Jeff, I, I thought this would be a pretty good quarter. I didn't think it was going to be this good. 
And the company is crediting gaming, strong gaming sales. Mobile continues to be fairly strong outside of uh, tablets. And this is funny, Chris, given all the, the talk this is getting. Delayed tax refunds were then taken into Best Buy and spent there, Best Buy is saying. So that helps sales as well. The company is a great a tale of retail survival. Let's recall, at the end of 2012, it was being left for dead, and the stock, due to Amazon.com, the stock is up more than 200% since then, as Best Buy has righted itself, righted the ship, by really focusing on helping people use their technology, learn, and learn how to use it. They're now focused on connected homes. They now have online sales that are about 13% of total U.S. sales. They have some new ideas coming. Uh, Best Buy Smart Homes is in operation in 400 stores. They're testing 24-7 support for all tech products. Whether you bought it at Best Buy or not, you can call Best Buy and get support for your product. And they have an in-home advisor program that they're setting up because as homes become smart, you need help uh, making that happen. So they've really done it right, and they have the tailwind of being in tech where all the action is. But still, it's a, it's a good tale of how a retailer left for dead can can survive. Well, and you think about how part of their plan was making over the stores almost almost similar to what we saw with Panera and the 2.0 initiative that they have. And uh, I'll just base it off of my experience at the Best Buy that's just a couple miles from full headquarters. It overwent, a, you know, it underwent a dramatic transformation. Um, but that's the kind of thing that takes time. It takes a lot of money. Um, but to your point, give them credit, uh, Hubert Jolie, the CEO. I mean, this was a pretty audacious plan, and they appear to be pulling it off. Stock at an 11 year high. <laughs> I mean, if you think the good times are going to continue, do you wait for a pullback here? I don't know. The, the shares trade at 13 times forward earnings estimates and only about six times free cash flow right now, and they have a 2.2% yield. So it is not an expensive stock. If you believe the future is bright, you could buy some shares now. I want to go back to something you said, Jeff, about how this was left for dead just five years ago. And we've talked a lot recently on this show about the traditional bricks and mortar retailers. Ron Gross made the point two weeks ago, look, some of these just aren't going to survive. That's how capitalism works. And it's unfortunate for the people who work there, but that's how it works. When it comes to the stocks, if you actually think these things are going to go to zero, why wouldn't you short more of them? Because, I mean, we saw Sears earlier this week spike up, not because they had a great quarter, but because their quarter was slightly less terrible than anyone thought it was going to be. Yeah, if you had the foresight to short a handful of years ago, at least, you could have shorted uh, a lot of these companies fairly cheaply. But now, the last few years, the story has been so telegraphed to the world that it's very expensive to short most retailers, even if you can get shares to borrow. In many cases, you can't. But Sears, for example, at one point, it cost 90% a year of the short of the shares that you're borrowing just to short shares. So you were banking on bankruptcy to make 10%. So it's very expensive to short. And then you have cases where things, uh, some retailers are surviving and doing well anyway. In Pro, we were short five below, uh, the you know chain directed towards kids and yeah. all items are five $5 or less. We covered two years ago, almost two years ago, around 27, and now the stock is above 50. So it's almost doubled. Good timing. So yeah, it's just to show that retail, the retailers who do it right are still doing well. 
Take-Two Interactive is pushing back the release date of one of its popular video games, and investors apparently could not care less. Fourth quarter profits came in much higher than expected, David. Stock up 15% this week. Boy, winning cures everything, doesn't it? Yeah, it really helps. And I think the big driver here for Take-Two Interactive and a lot of these video game companies like Electronic Arts and Activision Blizzard is digital. In this case, Recurrent consumer spending. That's what Take Two calls their virtual currency. Their what do they call it? Recurrent consumer spending. I feel like they could come up with a less complicated way to explain that, but it's basically anything you buy within the game. It's virtual currency, downloadable extra content, microtransactions within the game. All of that together now makes up about 25% of total revenue, and that's very high margin revenue. So you're seeing that profitability bump up. And even though um, Red Dead Redemption 2 is delayed until uh, next spring when it launches, they're still guiding for record profitability this year. And they're only trading for about 18 times forward earnings based on um, the guidance that they laid out. So, all in all, a lot of things to look forward to here. They should get whoever named that game to name that little revenue stream they have. Yeah, clearly they have creative people there. They designed some incredible uh, video games, but uh, they, they still have some work to do there. For what seems like the hundredth quarter in a row, Lowe's latest results were just not as good as Home Depot's. First quarter same-store sales up just 2%. Simon, I guess that's why overall revenue was a little light, too. Oh, gosh, Chris. I hate that narrative, though. It's, it seems like Lowe's continually gets compared to Home Depot, and it wasn't just as good. You know, Sorry, son, your older brother is doing a little <laughs> bit better in baseball this year than you are. A little bit different market. I mean, Home Depot is going more after contractors. Lowe's is going more about consumers and homeowners. And we're seeing a seven-year high for new new housing starts right now, which is juiced Home Depot's top line definitely over last year's. But I look at Lowe's, and I mean, this is a company, too, that's hitting 10-year highs in its operating margins, 10-year high, highs in its return on invested capital, which is now north of 16%. That's everything I can ask for as an investor. The stock's up about a triple in the past decade, and they're increasing their dividend. I feel like this is a company doing everything right right now. Yeah, and to Simon's point, Lowe's has it a little tougher going after the consumer because they talk about periodically in the quarter how their marketing was just not quite right. They didn't meet consumers exactly where they were, and so that marketing spend didn't have the return they wanted. Home Depot doesn't have to worry about that as much since they're going after the steady and lately growing contractor business. Do you suppose they have to spend money to actually get those contractors? I mean, I'm assuming if they do, it's a heck of a lot less than advertising on television for people like us. Uh, Lowe's does spend to get consumers in, Chris, uh, definitely. Coming up, if your kid is spending too much time playing video games, maybe it's time you start looking at video game stocks. Details next. This is Motley Fool Money. This episode of Motley Fool Money is brought to you by Harry's. I love Harry's. I've been shaving with their stuff for years. I've been a customer for years. And you should be checking them out as well, because Harry's Shave Set makes the perfect Father's Day gift. And you can get $5 off one of their shave sets, including a limited edition Father's Day set at harrys.com. Shave sets start at just $15, not to mention the $5 off when you go to harrys.com. You get a razor handle, moisturizing shave gel, and three of Harry's five-blade precision-engineered razors. Look, here's the thing about dads. We are all about routine. I've got three kids. I'm all about routine. We get used to something, we stick with it. And I'm, I'm guessing that your dad has probably been using the same shaving cream and razor for the past 20 years. So, get dad something new for Father's Day this year. And if not for your dad, how about yourself? Treat yourself. You know why? You got one face. You got one face, so treat it right. 
Go to harrys.com slash fool. That's harrys.com slash fool. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Simon Erickson, David Kretzman, and Jeff Fisher. Tough week if you are in the auto parts business. Third quarter, same-store sales were down for AutoZone. Same story for Advanced Auto Parts. First quarter report. And both stocks, Jeff Fisher, down more than 10% this week. And this is a kind of a rough patch for two businesses that have really rewarded shareholders over the long term. For a long time. And add O'Reilly Automotive to that. And you yep. have three, a trifecta of a disappointing quarter for these three companies. A few things have happened, Chris. One, as we talked about in the earlier segment, that tax refund was delayed. And it's funny how these companies all really rely on consumers to get that refund. And I was going to say, AutoZone called that out, whereas Best Buy went out of their way to to give credit to the delayed tax return. Like, hey, people took their tax returns and spent it here. AutoZone went the other way and said, yeah, um, tax returns were delayed and and, uh, they weren't spending money with, with us. Exactly, Chris. And they went further and said just last week that it never materialized. Once people got that refund, they didn't come in and spend it at AutoZone the way they expected. So, it was a one-two punch where it was delayed and then it didn't show up. And meanwhile, Best Buy is like, hey, everybody just came in and spent their refund on tech. Clearly, AutoZone needs to start selling video games. So, <laughs> That's where the money is. So, people care about their cars less, maybe, in today's world. But what also happened is the spring weather didn't materialize and stay the way they always depend on spring. April is usually a really strong month because it gets warmer. Everyone thinks, oh, time to clean my car, do some maintenance. That didn't really happen this year. And that's on top of a mild winter, which decrease their sales as well. So all these things, weather is a very real thing here. And uh, you know, the the talk on Wall Street is that while Amazon's going to challenge these auto parts retailers, so far that's not happening at all uh, according to O'Reilly and AutoZone. It's just not really on the radar yet. You mentioned the mild winter. You have to figure on some level, David, if you're one of these companies, you're rooting for potholes. They they won't say that exactly, but <laughs> you're not going to you know say in the that? back of their head they're just their fingers are crossed. Um, when you look at the stocks down, and in, in the case of Ad, AutoZone, Advanced Auto Parts, year to date, these stocks are down about 25%. Um, are they cheap? Is this an opportunity to, to get in at a, at a lower price? Or is it still something where you want to see, let's put this on hold for three months and see how they do next quarter? They've done so well for so long that they had inflated multiples, you could say, and AutoZone now trades at a 13 Price to earnings multiple, advanced auto parts is 17 times forward estimates. So they're not cheap yet as far as retail goes. When I see uh, valuations contracting on most retailers, it makes me leery of any that are high teens now still. We're closing in on the halfway point of 2017, and two of the biggest gainers in the S&P 500 so far are in the video game industry. Shares of electronic arts up 43% year-to-date, and Activision Blizzard, the number one gainer in the S&P 500, stock up more than 60%. David, is this now officially one of those industries where if you have a diversified portfolio, you need to start thinking about making room, some small room in your portfolio, for exposure to video games. I think so. The the way these companies are engaging with with customers, especially with this transition to digital, it's just such a more attractive and profitable business model compared to selling the physical discs in the store. We talked about Take-Two Interactive uh, in the first segment and they they last released Grand Theft Auto in 
Grand Theft Auto V in 2013, and that still makes up over 30% of their revenue today. So the shelf life of these games is just incredible, and the amount of money that people are spending over multiples of years is, is really astounding. And then you have esports. On top of that, a lot of esports championship tournaments like the League of Legends last year had 43 million unique viewers, which is more than uh, Game 7 of the NBA Finals. It's more than World Series. So the level of engagement conti- continues to tick up, but I think there's still a lot of room for this to grow globally. Uh, plus one for the level of engagement pun, un- unintended by David. <laughs> hey, I'll take Perfect, it. Yeah, uh, millennials are hard to advertise to, right? A lot of companies are, are trying to figure out how to advertise to this this growing part of the population. But one way that you can do it is through video games. And so, rather than advertising on television, you've got this new media, which is esports, which is kind of these giant platforms where people are playing games. And it's attracting a lot of millennials that are watching it, as you pointed out, David. And this is a great opportunity for companies to reach that that population too. It's interesting. Uh, in the Washington Post this week, on the front page of the sports section, yes, I still get the physical newspaper delivered to my home, so Me I too. can so I can say dinosaurs. The, the front page <laughs> of the sports section, but on the front page, there was a story about the University of Maryland esports team, which I had no idea that there were colleges that actually had esports teams, and it started, I think, as sort of as a club sport. And then these students went to the athletic department and essentially asked for permission to use the university name, get branded clothing, all this sort of thing. And now they're in some sort of tournament. I mean, I, I mean, you talk about advertising to millennials. When I think about dominoes to fall when it comes to esports, if someone start uh, as we see with traditional college athletics and Nike and Under Armour going to universities and saying, "All right, we'll pay you for your football team and your basketball team and your lacrosse team to wear our uniforms," is that the next step here? Are we going to see so like Take Two Interactive starting to? Put brand advertising on college esports teams? I, I think that's inevitable. You're already seeing some colleges give out scholarships. You have some colleges and high schools building esports stadiums where spectators can come and watch these uh, events play out. Uh, so, so I think there, there's a lot of room for, for this to, to grow. It's still a little hard for me to wrap my mind around, but especially with that younger audience, man, you just have a huge and growing global audience. How big a stadium do you need? Can't you just put them in wherever you play basketball on campus? Do you need it? Like, you actually need your own esports stadium? I, I suppose it depends on the game, but apparently so. You you will have a, th- these packed stadiums of people coming out watching other people play video games. And, That's and it's crazy. a growing trend. I mean, I get the camaraderie of that and the excitement, but why not just put on the VR goggles and watch it that way? Maybe in five years. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, Simon Erickson, earlier this week you were in New York City at a conference. If you could share uh, one or two highlights, I was following you on Twitter it seemed like, uh, among other things, a lot of excitement around Bitcoin. Yeah, that's right. Um, thank you for mentioning the TMF Innovator on Twitter. I went to the Consensus 2017 conference in New York City earlier this week. This is about all things Bitcoin, as you mentioned, but even more than that, kind of what is the blockchain behind Bitcoin? So, what is this new way of peer-to-peer networks where we're verifying each other's transactions, skipping the middleman, skipping the clearinghouse that we've typically used for bank-to-bank or peer-to-peer or anything else like that, and just having it be on a peer-to-peer network? And I think that that's going to be um, really one of the most fascinating technologies we're going to see in the next five years. We're figuring out what it means for 
for investors, and we're going to be taking a look, closer look at that for Explore next month. I, I, I mean, are there stocks to invest in here? Because frankly, I, j- I want no part of Bitcoin itself. Yeah, we, there's not yet. There's um, really a lack of companies that are built on the blockchain that are publicly traded right now. And as you saw, we tried, or the Winklevoss t- twins tried earlier this year to have a Bitcoin based ETF uh, that was publicly traded for investors and got denied by the SEC. So, we're still in the very early stages. I don't even think we've reached the first inning of what Bitcoin and blockchain is going to accomplish, but I think it's going to be very interesting, mostly for financial services, I think, is the first industry to embrace this. All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, the business of boardrooms and movies with the one and only Nell Minow. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. The summer movie season officially kicks off this weekend, and a few boards of directors have been making headlines lately. So, of course, we turn to the one and only Nell Minow. She's an expert in corporate governance. She's the film critic known as the movie mom, and she joins me now. How are you, Nell? I'm terrific. Lots to talk about today. A lot to talk about. Um, I want to start with something that corporate boards are heavily involved with, and that is succession planning. Um, were you surprised that Ford Motors board decided to replace CEO Mark Fields? I was a little surprised. Um, it wasn't that long ago when it was a huge departure of them to take somebody from outside the family. They've never quite really thought of themselves as a truly public company, and so I am a little surprised uh, when they start behaving like one. But uh, the truth is, uh, the company has not moved ahead the way that it should. Uh, It's getting uh, beaten on all sides. And uh, the question is, are they going to be able to find somebody to do better? I was surprised because three years ago, when he got the job, he was unanimously praised as the right choice. He's not a car guy, though. He's not a car guy, but he's been at Ford for, at that point, he had been there for 25 years. Alan Mulally, you know, that that was his right-hand guy. And so I, I I just sort of look at that and I think, well, wait a minute. There was unanimous support for this guy as the CEO. And I mean, think about Tim Cook at Apple. Even when he became CEO, there were still there was still a little bit of dissension. There was, There's a lot of skepticism because you know that was the hardest act in the entire world to follow. Um, with regard to Ford, however, the fact that there was unanimous support shows that they weren't looking for the right qualities. You know, this is exactly why we pay them the big bucks. And I'm speaking here about the boards of directors as well as the CEOs. This is exactly why we do that, because it is extremely hard. And you never know with a longtime number two guy whether he's going to take off that Clark Kent suit and have a Superman uniform underneath or whether his highest and best use is to be the number two guy. So should shareholders just sort of lower their expectations? Because at some point, regardless of what company you own shares of, at some point, there's going to be a new CEO coming in. And I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm thinking first and foremost of the Walt Disney Company, I'm thinking, speaking of hard acts to follow, I'm thinking of when Bob Iger eventually steps down, although... He did extend his contract through, through the middle of 2019, <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if he extended it further. I hope he does. As a as a Disney consumer and a Disney shareholder, I hope he I hope he does. I think he's done an amazing job. But he, in a way, was in the 
opposite situation uh, from Apple, from Tim Cook, because the easy thing to do is to come in after chaos. <laughs> the hard thing to do, because you can't, that's a low bar. The hard thing to do is to come in after, you know, a once to a century genius. And so uh, you, you remember how upset everybody was with Eisner. Remember the big fights that they were having? The Disney family got involved. It was a huge mess. And Eisner himself, of course, came in after total disaster. The company almost got broken up and sold off in pieces. And, um, and you know, he did great for a while and then, you know, not so well. So, the prob- you know, the problem is that I don't know what the right answer is for a car company in America right now that isn't named Tesla. <laughs> uh, Berkshire Hathaway recently wrapped up their annual meeting. Um, you've said that Berkshire is an exemplar of what an annual meeting should be. Um, what do you think it will take for more companies to embrace Berkshire's approach to annual meetings? I know that a, lo- a lot, if not most companies, don't really um, engender the type of affinity, if not outright love, for the company and the leadership that that Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett do. But w- what do you think it would take for more companies to sort of go in the direction of making their public meetings, their annual meetings, more inclusive? Uh, that's such a good question. And of course, he's the ultimate hard act to follow. When he decides to retire. Who knows what's going to happen? But yeah, they, they, that company does engender a fervent loyalty, uh, and and in part it is because of this transparency. Where they have like a nine-hour Q and A session. Yes. Uh, and you know, whereas a lot of companies seem to be moving in the opposite direction. Some companies are trying to have virtual-only meetings, and I think that's just a disgrace. The Council of Institutional Investors has really spoken out against that too, uh, and they pretend that it's going to be you know, make it more accessible because everybody can get on. Well, sure, fine, let's do that, but make it in person as well. There are some things that the uh, that lawyers call demeanor evidence where you really need to be in the room and looking somebody in the eye, and you need to be able to say, no, I don't want the CEO to answer the question. I want the head of the audit committee to answer the question, and, and that has to be in person. I think once, you know, once a year it's fair to say, um, uh, that that they should uh, be willing to have an in-person meeting, and with regard to Berkshire, I think what they do is is genius. The other 364 days out of the year, because they say, "You want to talk to us? We have a date when you can do that. We're not going to be nibbled to death by tweets or by a million questions. We will we will not go home until your question gets answered on the day. But the rest of the year, you got to let us run the business. And I think that that's the the flip side to their approach as well. You're on the board of a shareholder advocacy nonprofit called 5050 Climate Project. Um, in a first for an oil and gas company, Occidental Petroleum um, had a majority shareholder vote on a climate change-related proxy proposal. Um, what does that mean sort of in the big picture, um, and what did it take for them to have it? Well, I have to tell you, we just got the number, 65%. That's more than just a majority. That's a real serious mandate. And uh, that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. So 50-50 is the 50 largest investors and the 50 largest polluting companies and a way of trying to bring them together and come up with uh, with better solutions. And at Oxy, uh, one of the reasons that we 
uh, advise our uh, the, the institutions that we're working with that that would be a good company to target with a resolution is that they have not been very forthcoming. They have about what their strategy is, and uh, and you know we really tapped into a lot of investor frustration there. And there was a big big moment when BlackRock, which voted against the resolution last year, decided to switch. And I think they have something like seven percent of the stock. They're a huge block holder, uh, and uh, and that was a very compelling. Um, argument for the other shareholders as well. Do you think we're going to see other oil and gas companies go this same route? There's no question about it. We've already had our second uh, ever majority vote at PPL. We issued a new report on ExxonMobil and their failure to be transparent in their uh, in their strategic plan and on their uh, perverse incentives in the director compensation. And uh, I, we just found out today that uh, Glass-Lewis and ISS are supporting our approach, which is great because a lot of shareholders listen to them. Let's move on to the movie industry, and we'll start before we get to the summer movies. Let's get to the business of movies. Um, so far uh, in 2017, uh, it's when you look at the box office receipts, it seems like China is an area of concern. There's been a, a pretty big decline in box office growth over there. Is there anything to make of the international slowdown or is it just the fact that you know sometimes you get movies that uh, don't perform as well as others you know there's an industry publication that comes out every week with uh, a headline that's why x movie uh, five reasons why x movie did not make money over the weekend, and it's really just one reason the movie wasn't very good. It's almost never happens that a good movie is neglected by the audiences. Movies like, and I mean, you know, good can be applied in a lot of different ways. Movies like uh, The Fate of the Furious are still doing very, very, very well internationally, and one reason for that, you know, the 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 uh, the conventional wisdom was always that even outside the United States, audiences mo- were more likely to buy tickets if the performers were white, and that has really changed. And something like The Fate of the Furious, which has been wonderfully diverse uh, since their very first film, um, uh, shows that that that's really something that uh, international audiences respond to. So the summer blockbuster season is just now starting, and I think that you will see a big international pickup there as well. In terms of the business of movies, I think the most interesting issue right now, uh, we just saw at the Cannes Film Festival a huge fight over whether Netflix movies should be considered eligible because they're not necessarily theatrical releases. And uh, and I think that the the different distribution mechanisms for the way people get their movies uh, is going to have a big, big impact. Is, and, and the more there are, the happier I am, because it's just more choices for consumers. Where do you come down on that argument? Because certainly we've seen, for example, Amazon um, get into the business of movie production, but in most recently with Manchester by the Sea, um, that was actually playing in theaters. Um, do, do you agree with sort of those who say, you know what, unless Netflix is going to put something in an actual movie theater, then they're not eligible? I don't agree with that. A movie is a movie is a movie. You know, I talked to one of the producers of Lord of the Rings years ago, and he said, we, if, if anybody understood how much effort we put into every single square inch on the big screen, the 70-foot screen, they wouldn't watch it on a watch. But if they want to watch it on a watch, I want to, and, you know, I'm happy to sell it to them. And so my view is let the consumer decide. I prefer to see a movie in a theater whenever possible. I saw a 3 Max, uh, an IMAX 3D movie 
uh, last night, the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and um, and I think it will lose a lot if you see it uh, on a on a small screen. But that's really that's up to the consumer. If the consumer doesn't want to spend the money for a babysitter and parking and wants to watch it at home, it's okay with me. So one of the other ways that movie studios make money is through merchandising. And Bloomberg had a report out recently about you know the increase in very intentional uh, toy tie-ins uh, with movies this year. Uh, does that does that bother you at all, or do you just say, you know what, I care about what's on the screen, and if they want, if they're you know, as long as it's good on the screen, they can do whatever they want off the screen and in the stores. Well, the turning point on that was uh, Lion King. Disney, of course, has always been great at marketing, going back to the 1930s. But I mean, mar- merchandise marketing. But but when the Lion King came out, it was one of the top-grossing films of the year, and they still made more money on merchandise than they did on the movie. And you start to think of the movie as a loss leader for the merch. Um, and my view on that is that unless they are using uh, they're they're selling toys for PG-13 movies or even R-rated movies, um, then it doesn't bother me. But I don't like it when, say, Marvel uh, really markets hard down to the kindergarten level because they want to hook kids on these characters and then, um, uh, you know, and then make them think that a movie is appropriate for them when it isn't. So in terms of the movies coming out this summer, what are you really looking forward to and what is a movie that you just think... Not only am I going to skip that, I think uh, everyone should skip that. Okay. I'm going to really go out on a limb here. So if I'm wrong, um, you'll have to circle back to me. I think The Mummy looks terrible with Tom Cruise, and I cannot believe uh, that, uh, that, it, that they're releasing it. Now, you know, Universal wants to have an equivalent to DC and Marvel, and they said, well, what do we have in our library? Who are our characters that are like uh, Batman or Spider-Man? Well, we've got the mummy and the creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein. Let's build big franchises around them. Well, we just had a movie a few years ago with Brendan Fraser about the mummy that was pretty good. Uh, but this one, I have to say, looks terrible. So I, that's my prediction. On the other hand, Wonder Woman, uh, the highest budget movie ever with a woman director for a superhero movie directed by a woman, uh, looks absolutely amazing. I think that's going to be a great movie. And the one that I really makes my heart go pitter-pat is, uh, looks like uh, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Um, Luc Besson, uh, always interesting. Sometimes those movies are massive disasters, but they're always interesting. They're always visually striking. I saw some footage from it and some concept art last year at Comic-Con, and the trailers look incredible. So it's a, and, and Dane DeHaan is an actor who's uh, been about to arrive for a long time. So that one looks uh, really, really promising. One of the things you and I talked about the last time you were on the show was uh, Hidden Figures, yes. which just was such a wonderful movie for so many people. And it ended up being this movie that, uh, you know, schools would, go, you know, go and see yeah. middle school kids and high school kids. And they actually enjoyed it. They weren't being dragged to some boring movie. <laughs> is there is is there anything? And we shouldn't really expect these types of movies in the summer. But is there any sort of under the radar movie this summer that you think you know what? This might not be hidden figures, but um, while the Mummy and the next Transformers movies and all that sort of thing are going to be getting all the advertising budget, here's something you know under the radar that uh, you you yeah. want to seek out. Under the radar, the one that you really want to look for is called The Big. And it's a little independent film based on the true story 
of the courtship of uh, comic actor uh, Kumal Najani and Emily Gordon. It really did happen. He plays himself in it, and he was uh, he's uh, of Indian heritage. He was dating a white woman. Neither one of them told their parents, and then she became very severely ill and was in a coma, and all of a sudden he's in the hospital with her parents and had to find a way to be a part of what was going on. And, and, and uh, the movie is absolutely terrific. I think that's going to be sort of this year's maybe Big Fat Greek Wedding. Maybe that's the best comparison. And uh, then I also think that uh, Dunkirk is going to be a big movie uh, about the, the famous rescue during World War II. Um, and, uh, and just a nice movie is uh, based on a true story, Megan Levy story of a woman in the Marines uh, who was in the dog corps and uh, about what happened. Uh, and uh, I think that's a really good one. All right, last question, then I'll let you go. Recently, there was a, a real-life legal proceeding in small claims court in Texas where a man s- I know where sued his date <laughs> for texting during a movie. Give me your honest gut reaction when you saw that story. Whose side were you on? <laughs> if I were the judge and the jury, I would sentence her to at least one night in jail for, for texting during a movie. That's just terrible. I don't know that there is, as a lawyer, I don't know that there's a cause of action for tortious interference with enjoying a movie, but I love that, that he's trying, and maybe we can make some new law. One of the best reasons to be on Twitter is so you can follow Nell Minow, get her thoughts on corporate governance, movies, and so much more. Nell, always great to talk to you. Have a great summer. You too. Bye-bye. Saturday night at the movies, who cares picture you see? When you're with your baby, let's roll in the Up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. All right, before we get to the stocks on our radar, I've got to say thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, you want to work with someone you can trust and has your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. Come on, you're better than that. Your time's more valuable than that. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information to get a mortgage approved in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So, whether you're looking to buy a home or maybe just refinance that mortgage you've got right now, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Simon Erickson, David Kretzman, and Jeff Fisher. Time to get to the stocks on our radar this week and our man behind the glass, Steve Broida, will hit you with a question. Simon Erickson, you're up first. What are you looking at? Uh, Chris, this is early research for me, so uh, buyer beware on this one, but I'm looking at HDFC Bank. The ticker uh, is HDB, that's for the American Depository Receipts. This is an India-based bank. The reason that's interesting to me is last November, uh, India has really been trying to cut down on corruption 
And so what they're doing is they're invalidating their paper currency. They're trying to pull people into digital banks. That's going to take a lot of costs out of transactions and boost the transaction volumes, I think, for banks like HDFC. I think this could be a big opportunity for that company. Steve, question about HDFC? How important is internet access then if everything is going digital? Hugely important. You can't get onto a digital bank if you don't have an internet connection. But a lot of it, actually, Steve, isn't going through desktop computers. Like we had in the States, it's going off of uh, mobile phones. David Kurtzman, what are you looking at? I'm looking at stamps.com, ticker STMP. This is a software as a service provider of shipping solutions geared towards small businesses and enterprises of all sizes that basically sell stuff online that needs to be shipped somewhere. So whether you're selling on Amazon, eBay, Etsy, or wherever, Stamps software will integrate that into a single place and help you find the best deal on shipping from the USPS, UPS, FedEx, uh, or others. And their retention rates are rising. It's a subscription business, and average revenue per user is also on the rise. So good combination for a subscription company. Steve, question about Stamps.com? Uh, how can the margins be good if the you know, U.S. Postal Service <laughs> charges what they charge, and then you've got an, a middle person inserted here? How does this make sense? So they don't make their money on the postage. That's just sold at cost, but they make money from the monthly subscription cost. Jeff Fisher, you're up. Well, nothing too exciting, but it's fun to think about the companies that you love and that really make your life better, whether it's Starbucks or Amazon, or in this case, Southwest Airlines, ticker is LUV. Uh, the com- I can't tell you how many times it's improved my life by being able to change my flight to somewhere at last minute. Uh, the stock trades at 15 times forward earnings. It's returned 15% annualized the past 10 years, which is more than double the S&P 500's annualized return. I think uh, the future looks bright as oil costs remain modest. Steve? Is there too much comedy in Southwest Airlines? Every every flight attendant seems to be making a lot of jokes. I'm not interested in laughing. I just want to get where I'm going. I guess if you're a grumpy aging man, there's too much comedy. That was a statement, not a question. Burn. Steve, you got a stock you want to add to your watch list? I think Simon's looks pretty interesting. All right. We knew he wasn't going with Southwest. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is the occasionally cranky Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week.